Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up next hour, we're going to take a look at that House Oversight Committee hearing yesterday into unemployment systems. Several states are being looked at, including California, where, of course, we had the debacle of applicants coming in in huge numbers at the beginning of the pandemic to get benefits um, for those who lost their jobs as a result of COVID-19 or had their work severely restricted. Billions of dollars ended up going to um, people who had filed fraudulent applications and that money still outstanding uh, for the most part. At the same time, people who had very legitimate claims weren't able to get them fulfilled and ended up out in the cold. We'll find out where California's EDD department stands today and what's going on with the congressional investigation. But we begin with uh, also um, congressional news, and that is House uh, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has endorsed her colleague Adam Schiff for the U.S. Senate seat that is currently held by Dianne Feinstein. That endorsement is contingent on the current senator not running for re-election next year. But of course, Adam Schiff of the Los Angeles area isn't the only high-profile Democrat who has formally announced uh, that they're running. Katie Porter from Orange County, who's particularly popular among the left wing or farther left wing of the Democratic Party, she's running. And um, there have been multiple published reports that Barbara Lee, the Oakland member of Congress, is likely going to enter the race. And and that Rokana, who represents Silicon Valley, might also enter that Democratic primary. Now, this, of course, all against the backdrop of what Californians really want. What are their priorities? How do you represent a state that even though it has moved uh, further to the left and is heavily Democratic, still has significant financial support and voting blocks uh, among Republicans and independents who lean right in the Central Valley, far northern parts of the state, and even inland Southern California. Now, as the races next year are heating up, we have the Public Policy Institute of California that has surveyed Californians, taking a look at the issues that are of greatest importance to them. 23% reporting jobs, the economy, and inflation as a top issue for them. 20% report homelessness. So those are a couple of the top issues, perhaps not a surprise. And two-thirds of Californians are predicting bad economic times here in the Golden State ahead. So how does this all factor into the voting records of the candidates for the Senate and the way 
ways in which they portray their priorities politically. Joining me to talk about that issue is Fernando Guerra, professor of political science and Chicano Chicana Latino Latina studies and director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University. He's also an emeritus member of our SCPR Board of Trustees. And joining us from Pomona College, politics professor Sarah Sadwani, who was also a commissioner on the state of California's 2020 Citizens Redistricting Commission. Fernando, good to have you with us. Let me start with you, first of all, to take the temperature of Californians. The state seems to have moved to the left. The Democratic Party has become more dominant. Even those who are uh, no party preference voters lean to the left in California. What does all of this mean for the U.S. Senate race next year? Uh, good morning, Larry. Uh, it obviously everything you just mentioned means that a liberal Democrat will be elected, and I think all those names you mentioned I would consider liberal Democrats, and now there's even really uh, progressive Democrats. Uh, with the Republican Party being so weak, we focus on really dividing the Democratic Party into moderate Democrats, liberal Democrats, and progressive Democrats. And so I fully expect that a Democrat will be elected. How it plays out is, you know, uh, going to be determined throughout uh, the year, but it's going to be a very uh, expensive and hard-fought battle. Uh, but, you know, there's always the unexpected, a candidate from the business sector or a candidate from, you know, the uh, a cultural celebrity sector uh, could throw the race into a, a little bit of uh, a difference of what we're thinking at the moment. Uh, Sarah Sidwani, good to have you with us again. Your thoughts about how the the current uh, state of California priorities among the electorate factor into this race. Good morning, Larry. Thanks again for having me. Yes, I mean, California is, of course, a a stronghold blue state. So it's unlikely that we're going to see a Republican, you know, being able to succeed statewide. Uh, Like Fernando laid out, though, right? California Democrats have definitely taken a leftward shift. We'll remember in the 2020 primary election for president that Bernie Sanders was, uh, you know, captured the hearts and minds of Californians here in the state. And I think that is a a strong signal that there is a leftward turn, even amongst Democrats. And of course, we know the large number of independents uh, in the state, many of whom actually lean, uh, lean left or lean even further left than the Democratic Party. You know, I want to raise also one other piece, though, is that I think what's interesting right now is we have two candidates, uh, both, uh, of course, white candidates coming from districts that are not terribly diverse. There's certainly... Uh, some diversity in those districts. Um, and, and I think that's an interesting piece looking at how that's going to play out in a, in a California that is a majority minority state. This is a, a state that's quite different, uh, from 1992 when Diane Feinstein originally ran. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll yet to see exactly how those candidates are going to be able to reach out to a very diverse California. Sarah, I wonder about homelessness being such a high priority issue for Californians. And I think we've seen that uh, spread from urban parts of the state, even into other parts of the state that have seen a rise in homelessness. And I wonder if even though we're talking, of course, about national office here and we think of homelessness being something that really has to be addressed by state, county and and city governments, are these candidates going to be pressed on that issue? 
my sense is they'll have to be right. I mean, when they go out to talk with local voters, um, you know, voters don't necessarily always know which layer of governance is going to be responsible for making their lives, their neighborhoods and their communities a better place. Um, so, you know, I, I, my, I'm certainly certainly these candidates are, are going to be asked about what they will do about the homelessness crisis that all of our cities are, are facing across the state. Um, and perhaps they'll be able to come up with some, some unique uh, options in terms of some new partnerships that could be formed between local governance uh, and the national government as well to, to, to address some of these issues. I do think, and I'm, I'm, one of the things I'm really curious about, though, is the role that democracy will continue to play, uh, the, the, you know, of good elections, of, of security in elections. This, of course, has been a major play for Adam Schiff over the last several years, and it'll be interesting to see to what extent that remains uh, on the minds of voters as we move towards a presidential election in 2024 i'd love to hear from listeners and and uh, i'm i'm less interested uh in in your personal views on this as a listener and who you would vote for and why i'm interested in your analysis actually it's your intellect i want i want to hear from you <laughs> what you think about these candidates and and what is the appeal they're going to be able to make to different sectors of the electorate and on particular issues, given their voting records, how they've campaigned for their congressional offices in the past, what you know about the candidates. So many of our listeners are really up on this and and have a real sense of our state and of the candidates. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. And again, I'm looking for your analysis because we have so many people with very astute political analysis in our AirTalk listening audience. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. We're talking with Pomona College, politics professor Sarah Sidwani, and Loyola Marymount University professor of political science Fernando Guerra, 866-893-5722. I wonder, Fernando, as uh, we also look at the issue of education, and we see nationally that we've got these battles over school boards and um, differences over what should be part of public school curricula. Is that something, I mean, that hasn't been as big an issue here in California, though certainly there have been some contentious school board races in pockets. But is that going to be an issue here in, in the Senate race? Uh, it will be discussed, but it won't be an issue of differentiation in that I expect not only the uh, can- potential candidates that you mentioned, but others that might join on the Democratic side, that they would all have very similar uh, uh, positions. And that's going to be the challenge for voters is what distinguishes an Adam Schiff from a Katie Porter or Roe Khan or a Barbara Lee and others that, that might join because they're all going to take the conventional democratic position on the economy, on education, on homelessness. I mean, we saw it in the mayor's race here in, in Los Angeles during the primary and then other uh, significant races. It was really tough to distinguish uh, these uh, positions because it's very clear from polling where Californians stand. 
And so every candidate is going to try to differentiate themselves. I certainly expect Adam Schiff to do what, uh, you know, Sarah just said, focusing on democracy and his fight against uh, Trump, but also focusing on foreign policy and being on the intelligence committee that a senator needs to know that. That doesn't really resonate that much with um, most uh, voters that, uh, in terms of foreign policy. We know Ukraine is important. We know those issues are important, but uh, they're not going to focus as much on that as they would, for instance, on on education. And, and so the, the, that's going to be a, a difficult uh, task for the voters, distinguishing the really uh, uh, difference uh, between a Katie Porter and a Adam Schiff and therefore, they'll use sometimes geography that, you know, they're from Orange County yeah. or from the Valley. They'll use gender. Uh, uh, they'll use uh, some very important symbolic aspect in terms of who they'll support. And, Sarah, I wanted to ask you about gender. I actually asked this of, of uh, Congress Member Schiff last week because uh, we had him on just a couple hours after he formally declared. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, California has never had a woman governor. And we have had two women senators in the past. Uh, currently, uh, the junior senator is a man. And, you know, if you were to win this seat, it would be two men and uh, never having, you know, a woman governor in California. And I wonder, Sarah, how, how much of that do you think will be on the mind of women voters? You know, certainly gender becomes a big issue for some female voters. But over, you know, over time, we've seen that that female voters don't necessarily have that strong linkage uh, to female candidates. The way we might see race and ethnicity perhaps playing a, a stronger role um, in, in garnering support from individuals. So, you know, I think certainly it will be at play. We saw that it certainly at play in the mayoral race, for example, in Los Angeles, where there had never been a a female mayor of the city of Los Angeles. That's not the case for the Senate. Um, so it's unclear how, you know, how fervently female voters are going to feel about needing to have uh, female representation in the Senate. Of course, nationally, women continue to be underrepresented uh, in the Senate and in the House of Representatives. So it is an issue, but it's, it's not clear that's going to be, you know, a major organizing um, uh, component for female voters. All right. And if I'm not mistaken, women voters are still in the majority in, in California as they are pretty much a, across the country. Isn't, isn't that right, uh, Sarah? I believe that's correct. I believe that's correct. Yeah. Um, women are just um, more reliable voters generally. Again, <laughs> I welcome your uh, analysis of this. 866-893-5722. Fernando, uh, if we have Barbara Lee and Rokana entering the race, what are the particular issues that each of those possible candidates would be able to bring to this and and connect with a significant sector of the electorate? I think Ro Khanna is probably in the forefront of really uh, addressing and asking the impact of, of technology, of finances on the economy. He's really a, a, a progressive in the mold of a Bernie Sanders and I think he would be bringing up those issues and pushing California even more to the left in terms of the narrative, which is the direction that California is going. You know, Barbara Lee is an icon. She's been a member of Congress and a state legislator for many years. And of course, symbolically, she was the only one that voted against the Iraq war and is the only one that can say, I told you so. Uh, I she, I mean, I have wisdom, etc. Um, I think it's going to be very tough for Barbara Lee. She has very little money in terms of fundraising. I know we shouldn't just always be talking about money, but uh, 
you know, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter are prodigious, excellent fundraisers. Barbara Lee is not. Uh, and and that, that is a, a major concern for her to be able to get out her message. I do think, and this is purely conjecture on my part, that she's talking about it because if you recall, Governor Newsom said that if there was a vacancy that he would seriously consider appointing a, a black woman to the position, and she clearly would be the front runner and therefore wants to express that she's still interested in this, et cetera, and make it easy for Newsom to appoint her. And as a, a interim senator, she would have a tremendous advantage. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Yeah. But I think that's part of the calculation of her talking about running for U.S. That's so interesting. And I, I hadn't seen that elsewhere. And that makes sense. Uh, and again, this would be if Senator Feinstein decided that she was going to step down before Correct. the completion of her of her current term. We'll continue our conversation with political scientists uh, Sarah Sudwani of Pomona College, Fernando Guerra of Loyola Marymount University. And again, I'd be interested in your uh, analysis of this race and how the candidates will connect with or not the priorities of California voters. We're at 866-893-5722. You can also email your analysis to atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Carolyn Beverly Hill says, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter have created a schism. I hope they're listening to this. Well, there's a very good chance that the people who work with them are, um, because of course that's that's part of their job <laughs> to hear what's being said. It's great to have you with us on Air Talk. We're looking at the uh, potential race for U.S. Senate again. It's so early. We're talking about an election next year, and we're barely into 2023. But what's so interesting is looking at the issues of greatest importance to Californians, and then in what ways the candidates who run in the Senate race, whether it's Senator Feinstein, should she decide to run for re-election, along with the others who have to this point declared, Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, and others who at least have talked about the potential that they'll enter the race, like Barbara Lee of Oakland or Ro Khanna of Silicon Valley. 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. Um, the perceptions in this PPIC poll that just came out, perceptions about the nation are gloomier than views about the state of California. Two in three Californians say the U.S. is headed in the wrong direction. About three in four expect bad economic times in the country over the next 12 months. Seven in 10 respondents think President Biden and Congress won't be able to work together and accomplish a lot in the next year. Uh, That includes strong majorities across partisan groups, by the way. And 44 percent have at least a good amount of confidence in President Biden making the right decisions for the country's future. About six in 10 Californians say Republican control of the House will change, at least to some degree, the way things are going in the country. Sarah Sidwani, as as you look at this divide um, between how Californians perceive their state uh, versus the rest of the country, how then is that likely going to lead these candidates to campaign about national issues? 
Yeah. I, these are these are candidates running for Senate. So national issues are absolutely important. And the state of the, you know, the state of, of the nation at this point in time um, feels still somewhat uncertain. Right. We know that there is uh, a, a Trump campaign that is is already mounting for the presidency in 2024. We saw in Maricopa County in Arizona, uh, the election results continuing to be challenged. So many of the concerns that came out of that January 6th kind of time period and and the, the shadow that has been cast from the Trump presidency is still very much alive and well um, for all Americans, but obviously for Californians as well, given this poll. And I think it'll be interesting to see how that that narrative continues to play out over the next two years and the ways in which these two candidates and others, if they join in, are able to respond and show that they will be providing the kind of leadership Californians want to see to move the nation in a new direction. Fernando, I also wonder about, you know, Adam Schiff has been uh, so much, um, you know, in in the um, critical zone of conservative media for the claims that he made about President Trump, that the president was colluding with Russia. Uh, he's now been taken off of the Intelligence Committee by Kevin McCarthy, the, the Speaker of the House. And obviously, you know, voting in this election, though they're not going to be determinative, uh, are going to be Republicans and no party preference voters who lean Republican. And could that um, could that be the difference maker in a shift candidacy? Fernando? Yes. Can you hear me, Larry? Yeah, yeah, I can. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. That will be determinant if we end up with two Democrats in the November primary. Remember, California has a top two. So it is likely it is possible that two Democrats, meaning Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, both end up on there in the general in election. The, you mean? Yeah. In the general yeah. election. Yeah. Right. That uh, that that, a Dem- that Republicans are so weak in the primary that they don't get enough to be one of the top two. Now, if there's too many Democrats, including Barbara Lee and Roe Khanna and others that will split the Democratic vote in the primary and a Republican might be able to get into that top two. But I think your question is very relevant in November. Katie Porter versus Adam Schiff. And what's going to happen with the Republicans is the, uh, the, you know, the worst of two evils. And so they might actually just end up sitting out. But I think it gets buffered because there also there's a, a antagonism against uh, uh, Katie Porter. The, the, in terms of the issues are very, very important. However, these are two very similar uh, candidates. And what I think the Democrats are going to be looking for is a champion of the California perspective against the potential Trump, against the potential uh, uh, Senate uh, that might turn Republican or the, the House. And that's what they're looking for. And these two are, in fact, champions of the left, champions of the Democrats, champions of California. And, and so it's going to be very difficult for them to be distinguished. Uh, and so that uh, it might end up becoming personal between the two of them, especially if they make the runoff and, and are in November. And that will be unfortunate. But, uh, you know, if you're looking for policy differences, you're going to find very few. If you're looking for differences where they don't reflect where Californians are, according to uh, polling, it's going to be very difficult. So it comes down to personality, 
uh, fundraising, the, the commercials and how they distinguish themselves as the main champions, the ones that will be able to check Trump, check the Republicans, check the conservative ideology. And Sarah Sudwani, with what uh, Fernando just said in mind, what might this mean in terms of targeted advertising where the candidates do try and distinguish themselves um, despite the fact that they have so little policy-wise between them? Yeah, I think, you know, going back to something I mentioned before, I think this is this will be the important piece about reaching out to diverse Californians. You know, California, of course, is a majority minority state today, though that is not reflected amongst likely voters, right? Likely voters still uh, 55% of likely voters are, are white Caucasians. 35% are Latino. Uh, so so there's, there's this disparity that's out there. I think one of the key things that I'm looking at is, does a Barbara Lee join the race? Does a Rokana join the race? Rokana, I believe it's rumored, has said that he would uh, stand down if Barbara Lee plans to run, but if she doesn't, then he'll seriously consider it. Um, Rokana, I think, is an interesting interesting person because he has the, the uh, fundraising capacity coming out of Silicon Valley to potentially amass a whole lot of campaign dollars. He was the chair of the Bernie Coalition for California. So he absolutely represents that progressive kind of mindset of California, many of the Californians in that leftward shift we've talked about. But he also had as a person of color, he has an immigrant background and story to tell that might actually be able to come in and, and, and take away a whole lot of votes um, that otherwise, you know, Schiff and, and Porter would have to be attempting to get. So I think if he were to enter the race, it could really change the dynamics at the primary level. Well, the other thing to consider, too, is that if I'm not mistaken, Fernando, the Bay Area is really where most of these elections are decided. So if you have Rokana and Barbara Lee in the race, both from Northern California, um, that that regional difference could uh, accrue to their favor. Uh, yeah, but, you know, the things have been shifting, especially because of the new system of the top two and population shifts. The idea that the Bay Area has an advantage is no longer the case. They used to have an advantage because there was, the, the, in a Democratic primary, where only Democrats vote, a Northern California used, used to be able to leapfrog. But now when we have the top two, that's kind of mitigated that, and you can see Southern California is doing uh, much better. I think for the listeners, when you start looking at these people, really, when you think about Katie Porter, think about Elizabeth Warren. When you think about Ro Khanna, think about Bernie Sanders. When you think about Adam Schiff, think about Nancy Pelosi, uh, Barbara Lee, uh, you know, uh, uh, Representative Claiborne. Those are the national figures that kind of reflect where they are in, in the politics and the policies uh, at the national level. All right. Uh, and let me just read a couple listener comments before we conclude. Kevin in South Central Los Angeles emailed, overall, I think out of any of the candidates, we need someone that's going to reach out to all the communities within California. You know, for example, South Central, I feel it's been neglected for years. So it's great if we have a candidate that's claiming to be progressive or liberal, but if they're not following up in constantly connecting with those marginalized communities, which also include those communities in the Central Valley, um, 
are there other Republican-leaning communities as well? Uh, yes, there there certainly are rural Northern California, and there are inland areas of the state as well. Um, all right, I appreciate that, Kevin. Also, um, uh, Doug in Irvine emailed, Katie Porter's won in a traditionally Republican district by raising issues of corporate accountability and the high cost of prescription drugs. This should be an effective message statewide. All right, I want to thank you so much for being with us, our expert guests from Loyola Marymount University, Fernando Guerra, and from Pomona College, Sarah Sadwani. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, it's the 150th birthday year of the Los Angeles Public Library. Of course, the great central branch, uh, and or central library, and then all the branches as well. We're going to talk about the library, and I'd love to hear from you. Your favorite aspect of the Los Angeles library system, maybe a particular memory that you have that's just a a perfect encapsulation of what the library represents to you, or you have a question about the future of libraries, we're at 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. In its 150 years of existence, the Los Angeles Public Library has seen incredible changes. Technology, of course, but even people's reading habits. And the city has grown tremendously, spreading out, of course, from the urban core of Los Angeles. We have the Central Library with its tremendous architectural history and a center for the community for many, many years. But the branches, which are in many ways the community anchors in the neighborhoods where they're located. I'd like to hear from you during this anniversary year, 150 years of the Los Angeles Public Library, for you to share what it is you love best about the library. Maybe it's a particular anecdote of something that was just a very special experience or day of what the library's meant for you in different periods of your life. And also any questions you have about the future of the library. We're at 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. It's my pleasure to be joined by the librarian, for the City of Los Angeles Public Library System, John Zabo. John, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to have you talk about this. Just take us back a century and a half ago. What did the origin of the library look like? Well, thanks so much for having me, and it's, it's great to be with you and all your listeners to, uh, this morning. Um, well, there aren't many institutions in Los Angeles that have been around for 150 years, and the library got its start in the old Merced Theater in 1872. A group of people got together and said, we need a library in L.A., and uh, Ulysses S. Grant was president, and L.A.'s population was about 7,000 people, and uh, within the first year, they had a collection of uh, about 750 books, and uh, that's, of course, grown to over 8 million today and, and all of the great things that our libraries provide. Uh, but uh, uh, we had a, a, an interesting early history with a lot of moves from different 
reading rooms and buildings in downtown L.A. until this fabulous central library was built in 1926. Also joining us in addition to city librarian John Zabo was Susan Orlean, New Yorker staff writer and author of the wonderful book, The Library Book, which detailed the 1986 fire, which uh, did such destruction to the central library and, of course, the tremendous rebound of it. Susan, so good to have you with us again. What does the L.A. Library mean to you? Uh, Larry, thank you for having me on. And hi, John Zabo. Um, I am a relative newcomer to Los Angeles. I came here about 10 years ago. Diving into the story of the library reconnected me with the my childhood experience of being so passionate about libraries. But this particular building and the particular story of this library also connected me to something we often forget, which is the past of Los Angeles. We we're all very aware of L.A. as being a city of newness and future, but it has a such a rich history and the library is um, really central to that story. For me, growing up as as a latchkey kid with both of my parents working, the libraries that were were in the communities I lived in were just they were so important to me. First in Inglewood and and the library branch downtown there, and then when we moved to Hollywood, the Holiday uh, Hollywood branch of the uh, L.A. Public Library, and I just spent hours in there reading newspapers and 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 reading magazines from you know. All kinds of different places, very much what I do today. But um, it it was it was so formative for me. And what I love is that everybody gets to use the library, John Zabo, in a way that's totally their own. Probably none of us use the library in quite the same way. Well said. Uh, that's so true. And the, the library is that one institution that truly is for absolutely everyone in this city. We welcome everyone, and when we say we welcome everyone, we really mean it. And, you know, the library is a place uh, with, with not only our collections on our shelves, but all of our digital services and everything that happens at the public library. It's about opening windows and opening doors to possibilities and, you know, a, a young person uh, developing a lifelong love of reading and learning about other places and ideas. And, you know, the public library, we serve the poorest in L.A. We serve wealthy folks, too, people who are documented, undocumented, young and old, the housed, the unhoused in every neighborhood across the city. And we're really proud of that. And I think and, and I think it's because of that 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 set of values and serving everyone and relentlessly thinking about how we can serve people better. Um, is why we've been around for 150 yeah. years. Let's talk with Dan in Van Nuys. Dan, good to have you with us. Go, Mr. Luther was the head librarian at the time, and we did over, actually it was 12,000 lamps, and we replicated natural daylight, and the feedback was absolutely amazing. They could actually see the book spines, which they couldn't see before. So the patrons, everyone at the library... Uh, really benefited from it, but what what happened was all the lamps turned pink. But the company who supplied the lamps 
stepped up and replaced them all, and they not only saved money, but they could actually, uh, Mr. Luther and his team could actually see the books better. And my, my honor was working in the rare book section where it's uh, humidification control and help preserve those books by lowering UVC levels. So I just wanted to share yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. And Dan, I'm sorry, we didn't get you on promptly at the top. When did you say this was? This was 10 years ago before light-emitting diodes, before LED. But we, we significantly saved the city money. And the visual improvements were, were astronomical. Dan, thank very you. Very good project. Thanks. Uh, John Zabo, City Librarian, you want to comment on that? Well, yes, and, and we're really proud of all of our special collections. You know, the caller mentioned our rare books, and uh, we also are home to uh, about 3.4 million photographs here, a, a really interesting collection of almost 20,000 restaurant menus, and so thinking about preservation, whether it's lighting, uh, humidity, temperature control, security, that's all very, very important to us. And, you know, the L.A. Public Library really is a, a destination for L.A. history. We're a, a caretaker and a preserver of, of so much of the history of this community. And, you know, as an example, we have a digitization lab here at Central Library where we're um, digitizing much of that content so it can be searchable not only by Angelinos here in the city, but people all over the world who are interested in LA history. So we're always thinking about that and uh, certainly appreciate the contributions of the, the caller. One of the concerns, John, has been whether libraries would survive in an ebook era where people comparatively inexpensively can listen on their device to the reading of a book or or download uh, the ebook and and read it on their device. Um, that 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 would, in many ways, even for lower income people, make libraries obsolete. How has the library avoided that happening? Well, one of the things that, that we are doing is well, all of those warm, fuzzy things that we remember from our childhood about the public library, the story time, book stacks, all of that, all of those things are happening, and they're happening beautifully in our 73 libraries across the city. But the library does really great work in, in terms of providing a digital collections. So last year alone, we checked out more than 10 million, first library in the country to hit 10 million e-books and e-audio books. So we're we're purchasing that content and we're making it available free to everyone with a library card in the city so that's that's one example and then we make certain that every student at uh, LA Unified School District has a library card so they can access all of those digital collections which was something enormously important as we headed into the pandemic so that they had that that access and we also have all sorts of technology in our libraries we have the Octavia lab which is a maker space here at Central Library with 3D printing and uh, a podcasting booth and digital embroidery and all sorts of interesting things things that I'm sure that the the patrons of our library in 1872 couldn't even imagine <laughs> but uh, the library yeah. is always thinking about how to adapt to new technology and the public library today, uh, I think, is, is more dynamic and more relevant than ever. How we use our space obviously changes, uh, but we're, we're always uh, you know, serving our community equitably and, and working hard at that. Susan Orlean, for writers like yourself, what are the resources that libraries still offer making it valuable for people like you who are doing a lot of research? There is a wealth of material that the library has that becomes really important in research. There is 
so much at the library that's not yet digitized, even though, uh, as John said, the library is making a valiant effort to make as much of it digitally available as possible. But the library has so much that is not yet available digitally, so that there's that um, important feature of what you can get there as a researcher. Also, something that's really important that became maybe more pronounced to us during COVID and some of the post-COVID change in the way we work is the library is a space. It's a physical space. It provides a quiet, comfortable, uh, high-speed internet connected space in which to work. I think that even as we move more and more of the material online to make it really convenient um, and available to people all over the world, there's also the idea that we perhaps more than ever need or want a place to go that's not our house and that's not an office. I did a lot of the writing of the library book at the Studio City Branch Library because <laughs> I could not work at home anymore. It was driving me nuts between a young kid and a dog and, yeah, and my yeah. laundry and the doorbell ringing and everything that was distracting me. I I just thought I need to go somewhere peaceful and work, but I didn't want to be all alone, which is another part of the library that's so appealing, which is it's a place where you can have quiet and focus, but you're not all by yourself. It's not, it, yeah, doesn't it is community. Lonely. It is community. Yeah. Susan, Susan, hold that thought, please. Cause I, I want to share some more listener comments here and then we'll come back. Uh, Josh tweets at air talk. My favorite thing about the LA library is that there's the mighty LA public library and the LA County library. If one doesn't have the content a person's looking for, the other one likely does. Don't get me started on Overdrive and Hoopla and Canopy, all the online library resources that are available. Uh, thanks very much. And, and Manny, our producer, adds to Josh's comments saying the library is a great resource for movies. There's Canopy, but you can also see if your local library can order films and then you can rent them out. Amazing thing for working class folks to take advantage of. Sandy in Redondo Beach emailed, My first memory of library access was my mother walking me to the bookmobile that came by our neighborhood in Oklahoma City in the early 1960s. We didn't have a car to drive to the library, so that bookmobile helped my mother teach me to learn to love reading. For those who go to Washington, D.C., don't miss the opportunity to take a tour of the Library of Congress. Amazing. That's Sandy in Redondo Beach. We'll continue our conversation as... We observe the 150th anniversary of the Los Angeles Public Library with City Librarian John Zabo and with New Yorker writer Susan Orlean, author of the book, The Library Book, about the L.A. Public Library. We're at 866-893-5722. Back in one minute.
Nancy and Marina Del Rey emailed us. The L.A. Public Library's leading the way in dynamic and performative community outreach. Just one example is the live broadcast of this Saturday's P-22 Celebration of Life from the Greek Theater. It's being broadcast to numerous libraries around the city. What a great gift the library is giving to Angelinos. Nancy, thank you so much. And we'll also be broadcasting that memorial live from the Greek Theater coming up this Saturday right here on KPCC. Our intern, Michael, says as a chronic keeper of books past their due date, I would personally like to thank the L.A. Public Library for eliminating overdue fees. <laughs> All right, Michael. Thanks very much. 866-893-5722. A city librarian, John Zabo, um, what are the biggest challenges that the library faces going forward? I think it's taking advantage of all of the opportunities that are that are out there to serve communities because we're in every neighborhood of LA often uh, one of the most beautiful buildings in each of those neighborhoods we are that civic space that Susan talked about uh, there's so much opportunity for us to do really good work in so many different spaces our libraries have really terrific citizenship programs helping people take that first step on the path to citizenship health programs uh, arts programs, I think of the library as a workforce development uh, organization, helping people find jobs, all the work that we do in digital equity, and it's, it's, it's making certain that we're doing a great job at all of those things, uh, but, uh, but just taking advantage of all of those opportunities, and uh, it's, it's really exciting. And I, I could listen to all of your listeners' comments all day long. Oh, that. <laughs> absolutely wonderful. And it's so, so great to hear all of that. We're really proud of the work that we do. Well, let's get another one from Colleen in Lakewood. You're on Air Talk. Hi. Um, my name's Colleen with a P. But, um, my story is that when I was a little girl, I finally got to the point where I could take out 10 library books that were hardcover and 10 that were paperback. I was wondering what paperback book I should take out, and this older gentleman handed me a book called Fahrenheit 451 and suggested that I read it. I went home, I read it, I came back the next week, he asked me what I thought of it, I told him it had a horrible ending. For a bookworm like me, the way the book ends, and I'm not going to say it because it's a spoiler, it's terrible. Later on in life, I found out that the older gentleman who became my Monday night library friend was Ray Bradbury and the library had been named after him. Ray Bradbury gave you a copy of his book, Fahrenheit 451, Pauline. That's, oh my goodness. How many years later did you find out that was him? About 50 years later, because this happened when I was nine years old. Wow. And I was on a Facebook page and we were posting pictures of our favorite libraries and I went to find a picture of my library and discovered it had been named after him. And I wondered why, and they said in the write-up that it was because he came in every Monday night. And I would always go to the library every Monday night after my piano lesson. And so um, wow. I went to look for a picture of him, and there was my old friend. Now, do you still uh, hold that view of Fahrenheit 451, or has your critique softened in the intervening years? Well, it, it's an excellent story, but if you can imagine a little girl who loved to read and loved to go to the library and look forward to every Monday night reading a book that ends in the way that book ends, 
it, it just seems so horrible. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and of course, that, that is the point. Pauline, thank you. So good to hear from you. What a, what a wonderful anecdote. Um, Gio in Van Nuys asks, what's the library going to do in regard to safety for family and children when you have so many people um, that are essentially spending their days in the library who are dealing with mental illness? You want to respond to that, John? What was the first part of that question, Larry? What, how is the library going to make sure that families and children are protected mm. when so many of the libraries have people who are spending their days there who are struggling with mental illness? Sure. Well, that's certainly an issue for our libraries. It's, it's a challenge. Uh, one of the things that, that we are doing is we're bringing aboard a social worker for the very first time uh, this month. Uh, who will be an employee of the library. We also have contracts with uh, eight different nonprofits. Uh, this is something new uh, that we're doing with mental health agencies, other social service providers to try to address that need, meet that need. Um, I'm really proud of the, the approach, uh, a very empathetic approach that we take to this issue, uh, wanting to make certain that we, we do welcome everyone and that everyone is treated uh, equitably. But we also, of course, obviously want a safe and secure uh, and welcoming environment for everyone as well, uh, for families, for young people, uh, because the library is for everyone. So um, th- those issues do pose, ch- pose challenges for us, but um, we try to be proactive in addressing them and, and really leverage the fact that the library is here. Um, those individuals with those issues are, are in our midst and with us, and if there are things that we can do, um, to, to address that, we certainly okay. want to do that, and that, that creates a, a, a better space for everyone to be able to use. Joel emailed us, when I first moved to Los Angeles, a friend invited me to a reading of the Gregory Peck Performance Series at the Central Library. We ended up joining the library to see all kinds of amazing performances from readers like Peck and Laura Dern and Jack Lemon and many others. It was a great introduction to Los Angeles and a memory that I cherished. Laura in Atwater Village emailed, I moved to this country in 1963 onto Hollywood Boulevard. As a fellow latchkey kid, I raised myself at the Hollywood Branch Library. The old one learned the reader's guide. Laura, thank you so much. Um, we also have, uh, let's see, this is uh, from Adriana who tweets at AirTalk, please tell Long Beach library lovers they need to show their love coming up Monday Monday of next week, it's 6 o'clock. It's the last City of Long Beach public input meeting on the budget. Okay, Adriana, thank you very much for that. And boy, I know Long Beach residents, where my mother lived, really do love their library. I've spoken there and uh, at the old library. And... Um, it is a very library-centric city, as so many of them are, to the point where you know cities that have put measures on the ballot to come up with designated funding for libraries, that's about the least controversial measure that you can put on to get people to, to pay money for. That's how sacrosanct, how beloved libraries are. Uh, John, just real quickly in, in closing, um, you have a couple of events to highlight. We're just about out of time. Yes, uh, December the 7th uh, was our 150th birthday, but we're spending the, the, the following 150 days 
celebrating this birthday, uh, there is a, a, believe it or not, online, a virtual escape room that will take you through the library history and has various virtual puzzles to, to, to escape from. We have uh, a time capsule program, uh, a, a, mu- a playlist of music uh, over the last 150 years. Uh, and just all sorts of great, great programs. And I'll also mention we have a fantastic exhibit right now uh, called Barrier Breakers on the Negro Baseball Leagues, and it highlights oh, uh, those leagues. It's from a museum in Kansas City, and Very it's good. at the gallery here at our Central Library. Thank you so much, John Zabo, City Library and L.A. Public Library, and the wonderful writer from The New Yorker, Susan Orlean, author, author of the library book. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us wherever you're listening. Good old-fashioned radio or on the KPCC app on your smartphone, wherever you travel. Remember, you can take us with you. That weekend trip out of town, business trip across the country, vacation with family. Wherever you go, you're always going to be up to date with the KPECC app on your smartphone, listening to the 24-7 stream of KPECC. You can also tell your smart speaker to listen to KPECC whenever you're within its range. Also want to remind you, tomorrow it's Film Week on KPECC. Our critics are Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon. And we'll hear what they have to say about the horror film Knock at the Cabin from M. Night Shyamalan, who directed and co-wrote the film. Also, the comedy 80 for Brady, which stars the quartet of Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, and Sally Field, based on the true story of four close friends who take a trip to the 2017 Super Bowl to see Tom Brady play. Brady's their hero. He's also an executive producer on the film 80 for for Brady. Those and more movies coming up Film Week tomorrow, 10 o'clock right here on KPCC. But yesterday, the House led, uh, the Republican led House Oversight Committee held a hearing looking into all the fraud around pandemic relief. One of the states that was highlighted was California, where we saw an estimated $20 billion in fraudulent payments. Now, Arguably just as bad as all that money that was paid to people uh, who were scamming the state were the people that legitimately deserved and needed financial help that couldn't get the payments from the state of California. So it was a disaster in both directions. Joining us is Cal Matters investigative reporter who's been covering the State Employment Development Department uh, since uh, mid-2020, Lauren Hepler. Lauren, thank you so much. Good to have you with us again. Uh, has EDD actually cleared all the backlog of, of these uh, of these applications? It's a good question. This has been sort of an ongoing issue since, like you mentioned, back to, you know, the, the dark days when everything was shut down early in COVID. The, the backlog really peaked in sort of late 2020 when you had hundreds of thousands. At one point, it was over a million folks who were just waiting for answers and and really dire cases. I was talking to folks who had been forced into situations like living in their cars or struggling to feed their kids. Um, and, and by all accounts, now that backlog has, has definitely gone down along with the unemployment rate. So that's good news. But there's still a lot of big unanswered questions like um, how much fraud was 
was there? Have we put ourselves in a position where this isn't an issue in, in a future sort of economic crisis or a downturn? California apparently wasn't alone, although I don't know if the scale's comparable. New York, Pennsylvania, also part of of this House Oversight Committee hearing yesterday. Um, To your knowledge, were there consistencies in the problems that these states faced? For example, I know here in California, what we kept hearing from EDD is they simply didn't have the technology to handle this. Not just the people, but the tech was outdated. Yes, IT and outdated computer systems have definitely been a recurring theme. Uh, claim systems that are just, you know, kind of <laughs> held together by like glue and a prayer and lots of contracts over decades, um, just really kind of, in some cases, auditors have said, really melted down when it, it came to this unprecedented surge in unemployment claims during the COVID lockdowns. Um, and, and so you are hearing that about that happening in many states, even beyond those few big ones you mentioned. Um, the question is sort of like, why was California such a big target for fraud? And some of the things I've heard from experts are that, A, the, the amount of benefits that our state gives out, given that it is such a high cost of living state, tend to be a bit higher. So if you are a criminal, um, you know, you can get more bang for your buck by going after California's unemployment system. But there are also some questions that have been raised about what kind of safeguards did we or did we not have in place? Um, the federal government did say, you know what, this is an emergency. You don't have to submit the level of documentation you normally would. Um, but there's questions about whether EDD had internal checks um, that, that they maybe should have. So that's definitely a big ongoing area of discussion. All right, Lauren Epler with us of Cal Matters. Also joining us, longtime columnist with Cal Matters, the nonprofit news site, Dan Walters. Dan, you've certainly written about this a great deal over recent years. Your thoughts about where EDD stands right now? Well, I think a couple of points are interesting. Number one is that they had a similar breakdown, although not quite on the scale, but basically the same kind of breakdown during the previous recession the Great Recession, as some people call it. So there was a lot of warning there that the that the system wasn't working very well. Uh, and the governors, I guess Schwarzenegger and then Jerry Brown, uh, basically ignored it and said, well, you know, they didn't they didn't make it a priority to fix problems that were co- coming to uh, to their notice back during the previous recession. That's one thing that's an important thing. There, were, in other words, California was warned that this was not not working well. Secondly, the uh, the fraud, uh, maybe as much as $30 billion in fraud, primarily related to the federal extended benefits rather <clears throat> excuse me, than the state benefits. And at the time, of course, EDD was under a tremendous amount of pressure from the legislature and the media and everybody else to fix the problems that were described earlier, just people not getting their the support they were entitled to, legitimate claims. I, th- I think there may be a bit of kind of a, well, you know, we've got to do something about this, so just just start shoveling out the money. Don't worry about it. So I think there was a kind of a, an attitude in EDD that they, we, they had to do something about the pressure they were getting about the, about the shortfall in, in handling claims. Finally, uh, in this hearing that, they, that Congress uh, is holding, the, the Newsom administration, the EDD, sent a letter to the committee saying basically it was Trump's, Donald Trump's problem. He's the one that caused this because they didn't get enough guidance from Washington to fix the problem. 
Say what? <laughs> can, can you exp- wait, wait, can you exp- ex- explain that? Because um, that's right, that's a new that's a new argument from the state, okay, isn't it? I'll quote I'll quote from the letter. There's a long letter. It says, unfortunately, the Trump administration expressed no interest in establishing a coordinated national response when these unemployment programs were initiated in 2020, and therefore. Uh, leaving states to fend for themselves against a clear pattern of sophisticated international criminal syndicates at work. So it's kind of blame shifting. You know, there's a lot of finger pointing going on here, and some people are pointing the finger at blame at guess who? Donald Trump. <laughs> but it was the state. It was the state system that was handling this. Lauren Epler, can can you explain a little bit more what the state is is now claiming here? Because this, the money was given to the state for then the state to do the vetting and the distribution of it. So, I mean, it seems a little odd at this date now to turn around and blame the feds for this. Yeah, it's really interesting how this debate is kind of migrating to the national stage right now in what we know is a, a really divided uh, sort of political climate in Washington. So yesterday, we during this hearing that happened on the mor- during the morning in Capitol Hill, um, you saw kind of both sides squaring off. And like Dan was saying, you have the Democrats and this letter from EDD that were suggesting, you know what, when all of this started, this was on the Trump administration to really make clear what the parameters, what the parameters were. As I mentioned, there were some requirements that were waived at the time in terms of verification. So they're saying you're basically leaving us holding the bag for what was a poorly designed emergency system. Then the Republicans are turning around and saying, wait, 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 this was this is on. Uh, governors, in a lot of cases, they were pointing to Democratic-run states like California and New York. It was on you guys and your systems to actually get this money out. So don't turn around and blame it on this. So I think we definitely are just getting to the begin, like to the beginning, really, of the blame shifting that we're going to see. And um, I, I think, as um, Michael Horowitz, the chair of the Federal Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, said yesterday, the big question is where this money went and what really happened. So he said the public should know where money went. Congress needs to know where money went because you can't figure out whether a policy worked, whether it's been defrauded, and who's accountable when you don't even know where the money went. Well, and the other huge issue, which Dan alluded to, Lauren, is that the state knew this was a problem going back years ago and really didn't invest in the IT systems and being prepared for something like this. Now, you can argue, well, who would have ever known we'd have the scale of benefits that we had here with the pandemic and whatnot? But but clearly, when we went through the 2008 recession, they knew that things like this could happen and that that, you know, we have severe problems where where the market falls apart or um, now we know that we have pandemics. So can it is is anybody really paying attention to prioritizing fixing this so that the next time it works properly? Yeah, it's a good question, Larry. And one of the great ironies here is that EDD actually did spend a lot of money before and during the COVID emergency. I requested tech contracts that EDD was signing in 2020 and 2021 with big name companies like Deloitte, a major Salesforce vendor. There was this identity verification company. A lot of people might have heard about ID, ID.me that was pulled in during this big mess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and our analysis showed that the agency spent at least 230 $36 million, just like in that window during COVID. And we're continuing to go back um, after the, the great 
Great Recession to learn more about that. So one big question is like, okay, even though there were these concerns raised, like were we spending money on the right things? Um, And to your point about knowing that recessions are kind of a, a, you know, a constant, there's something that come up, emergencies like pandemics, though we weren't quite as prepared for that one, um, can also come up. So one thing that did come out of the legislature last year was requiring EDD to develop a real recession plan that's in print. Folks can can look it up now. It, you know, it's one thing to have a plan and one thing to see how it works in practice. Um, there's also been some changes made, like better cross checks with the Department of Corrections, because there were so many concerns about claims being filed in inmates' names and convicted murderers' names. Um, so there there have been small changes made, or some, some that are more substantive, really. But, um, you know, it's not something that has continued to be really at the front burner in the state legislature. And this, of course, is what so often happens. The crisis passes and then attention turns to other things. And, and because this is such a big ticket to invest in an over, overhaul of the system like this, particularly we're looking at a gap in the state budget, um, Dan, I mean, is this part of what we typically see in California where crisis is over and, and no one's paying attention? How many times have we had warning that California had uh, problems with its water delivery system? And, for example, I mean, this goes back decades. People are saying we need more storage, we need more storage, we need more storage, and never storage, the storage was not built. I'm going to point out one more thing that, EDD was the subject of a 78-page report report by the state auditor's office. This is not the Washington, but the state auditor's office, saying that, quote, EDD's poor planning planning and ineffective management left it unprepared to assist Californians unemployed by COVID-19 shutdowns. Yeah. So So that's not criticism from Republicans. That's criticism from the state's own auditor saying that EDD basically blew it and that they... It was not it was not up to the job of doing what it needed to do. Dan, there's also I mean, there's there's uh, the huge direct impact on Californians left in the lurch and uh, between 20 and 30 billion dollars that's ended up in hands that weren't supposed to have the money. But the other issue is this is symbolic, too, because like you're saying, with water delivery and and other challenges the state has had, this sort of adds to the narrative that California, despite its huge economy and all all the things that develop here in California, the way that we set the pace for the rest of the country, all these important things that California represents, at the same time, we don't in state government seem competent at being to execute some of the basic planning functions of a state of this size. And, and I mean, to me, EDD is sort of, you, you know, the, the per, it encapsulates it perfectly. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and I'll give you another example of it, that the IT failures during uh, at uh, EDD is just one of many uh, technology projects in the state government that haven't worked. I mean, we have we have a backlog of IT projects that haven't panned out, and so the state has a, a a larger problem of all using information technology effectively. Uh, and it's, it's starting with EDD, including the Department of Motor Vehicles, including all these other things. So there's a there's a sy- systematic problem uh, with all of these things, and uh, and yet and but there is a tendency also, and this is part of another tendency, is that to blame somebody else for the problem. The governor blames local governments for not fixing homelessness. 
he blames there's a big exchange that just went on this week about the man who shot a policeman and killed a policeman down in the little town of Selma. And the local district attorney says that's because of that. The Newsom administration released this guy from prison after only five months, even though he had been sentenced to five years. And the governor comes back and blames the, blames the uh, local district attorney for not putting the guy in jail longer. I mean, this is yeah. this is no blame one, shifting business that goes on constantly. No one wants to take the responsibility. Dan, I appreciate it very much. Dan Walters, longtime columnist with Cal Matters. Lauren Hepler, who's investigative reporter at Cal Matters, who's been closely reporting on EDD. Just final question for you. You know, is anything going to come out of, of this oversight committee event yesterday? Or is, is this more a partisan exercise of, of the Republican majority trying to beat up on a Democratic state? Nothing more just than, you know, than that opportunity yesterday and then it's done. It's a question that we'll, that we'll have to see. But I, one interesting part of this is that the committee has uh, asked for some very specific data from EDD. They want a bunch of documents on what EDD's COVID protocols were. They want communications between state and federal official uh, documents related to efforts to prevent fraud. So there is a possibility that we'll get some more details on what you know exactly went wrong. There is a huge range still in what the total fraud was. You, the estimates you hear um, range from about 20 to 32 billion, depending who you're talking to. Um, but the other important thing to remember is that this is happening at a really charged time in Washington. You know, we've got the party squaring off about the federal debt ceiling, and there's a big conversation still to come on what is going to happen with spending on social services like unemployment. So expect this to be a political football that's going to be leveraged in the months to come. I think this is definitely not the last we're going to hear about unemployment fraud. Lauren, thank you so much. Thank you for your reporting on this and for joining us to talk about it again on Air Talk. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Lauren Hepler with us, investigative reporter for the nonprofit news site Cal Matters. It's Air Talk on KPECC. In just a minute, we're going to talk about the state of geoengineering. This, the idea that you can help to mitigate the effects of global warming by finding ways of cooling the environment uh, after the fact, after the damage is done. We'll talk about what science uh, is being explored there and the companies that are in that space when we come back in one minute. I hope you'll join me at the historic Orpheum Theater in downtown Los Angeles, Sunday afternoon, March 5th. It's our 21st annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. All our Film Week critics will be on stage with me. We'd love to have you there. It's exactly a week before the Oscars are given out in Hollywood. But join us in downtown Los Angeles for our annual Film Week Oscar preview at the beautiful historic Orpheum Theater on South Broadway in downtown L.A. Tickets are available at LAist.com slash events. And we've worked out a very, very low ticket fee for those tickets. So I know this is a big item in the news lately with all the fees that get added on to tickets that are sold. You'll find the fees for this event to be extremely, um, extremely uh, small and uh, understandable, I'm sure. So just go to LAist.com slash events. We hope to see you there Sunday afternoon, March 5th at the Orpheum. 
Mexico recently banned geoengineering experiments after a startup called Making Sunsets, which is based in Baja, was found to be conducting small solar geoengineering experiments without permission from the Mexican government. Solar geoengineering releases sulfur dioxide into the air in order to lower temperatures or create weather events. The scientific community is is split. Um, There are many unknowns about it and the Concerns are about unintended consequences from attempting to mitigate the effects of climate change. But there are also those who tout the technology and say that with the climate um, warming up and that being unavoidable to some extent, there need to be interventions to try and deal with that process. Joining us to talk about geoengineering is Eric Neeler, science reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Us. Tell us a bit more about this uh, particular company making sunsets. How, what was their technology planned to do? Right. Uh, hi. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, so this was really a small startup with uh, a, a one entrepreneur and a couple of employees. Uh, he had also gotten some venture funding from the Bay Area and had set up a plan to basically take uh, sulfur dioxide in the gas form, put it in weather balloons, um, uh, launch these balloons up into the stratosphere, sort of the upper part of the atmosphere, and then release this gas. And with a chemical reaction, it turns into these par- into particles, into aerosol, very tiny, tiny reflective particles, and the idea would be that this would sort of uh, reflect solar radiation or sunlight back uh, to the at- uh, back out to space, and then uh, with a large enough coverage, you could basically act as a sort of a, a tinfoil blanket or a solar blanket that would, you know, reflect uh, the uh, the sun's radiation back into space and, and cool the planet. That was the idea. This was sort of um, and um, this was sort of the first go-round. He had also, the idea to make money on this was companies could sort of purchase cooling credits, much like you may have heard of something called carbon credits, where companies can purchase um, credits maybe in a forest or for renewable energy and, and then get credit for their reduction of greenhouse gases. Well, this was a similar idea. It didn't get so far, but um, it certainly got a lot of attention. And uh, the Mexican Environmental Ministry uh, told him to cease and desist. What are the reasons they gave for not wanting him to do this experiment? Sure. So Mexico and many other countries, although not the United States, had signed a treaty, a biodiversity treaty, a few years ago. And as part of that treaty, it uh, banned this sort of uh, uh, this sort of solar geoengineering uh, project. Um, in the years since, uh, there have been some amendments to that, but that's the main reason. Because, And also, one of the other reasons was that the company really didn't identify or, or, or talk to um, neighbors, didn't talk to other folks that might be impacted, anyone in Mexico, and they felt that it was just basically a violation of their sovereignty. Um, no, There was no laws on the books against it, but... But, you know, that was the ruling that it was something that they just didn't want going on on Mexican yeah. territory. And, and Eric, um, 
What are some of the the broader concerns about solar geoengineering generally? I mean, obviously, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, There are many people who would love to economically exploit this area and do experiments like this. What are the concerns uh, about using this technology or pursuing it? Of course. So a couple things is that uh, we don't really know what some of the downstream effects could be. You may get cooling in one place and and warming somewhere else. You may get um, uh, cooling in one place. You may get droughts in one place and and severe rainfall in another. So many people, or at least the people opposed to this idea, uh, feel that it's, you know, when you start tinkering with a complex uh, environment like the upper atmosphere and how that's linked to our weather patterns, that there are just too many unknowns right now. and now some, a lot, there's a lot of scientists who say, yeah, that's true, so we need to research this. Let's, are there ways we can do simple experiments in the atmosphere, some atmospheric chemistry, for example, to see if, if we can understand these the downstream effects that may occur and whether this could be a solution um, in a large enough area. Uh, there are also some concerns, not, not proven, but some theories that... Um, a large swath of, of reflective solar uh, particles could affect, uh, could worsen the ozone hole, the southern ozone hole that opens up um, in the um, over the South Pole every year. It's, it's getting smaller. It's been it's been um, improved over years. It's it's yeah. And they don't want to see that better. go backwards. Yeah, it, exactly. So lots of uh, feedback loops in the atmosphere okay. that just aren't understood yet. Science reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Eric Kneeler, with us, also with us from UCLA, professor of environmental law, Edward Parson. Professor, it's good to have you with us. Your thoughts about private companies as opposed to, um, you know, universities doing this kind of research? Um, well, uh, thanks Thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. Um what these guys are doing in Baja isn't really research. Uh, I think of it as a theater, uh, a kind of a stunt or a demonstration. Um, you know, one way to think about what they've done is that it's it's so tiny it can't possibly matter to anyone. It's like you can buy a weather balloon on Amazon. Uh, you know, subject to a few restrictions, you can launch it. They sent something like 10 or 20 grams of sulfur, maybe to the stratosphere. They don't even know how high the balloons got before they burst. So there's one way of describing it that is like it's absolutely nothing. It's like a hobbyist tinkering around. It attracted so much attention, though, because they say what they're doing is solar geoengineering. Uh, Now, normally people think about potentially doing geoengineering and they think about doing it at a big enough scale that it could actually do something and to be measured. partly reduce the effects of climate change. Um, uh, the scale they're operating at, they really can't do anything, but the notion that private companies can do this and can actually sell credits, and there's some real problems with the way they're trying to sell credits here, that riles a lot of very reasonable sensitivities and concerns of kind of, you know, messing around with imperfectly understood uh, climate uh, climate interventions. So I'm a big enthusiast for doing more research on this stuff. It is very much an open question whether it would ever make sense to actually do it. 
But no matter how you feel about either one of these, having a small startup company do it in a kind of scientifically uncontrolled way and sell credits for it is really is a terrible idea. And your thoughts about, you know, whether, you know, because there are always venture capitalists who are looking to invest in, you know, climate related projects. You, you think that we're just going to hear more and more about companies who claim that, you know, what they're doing is going to enable them to sell these offsets to industry? Well, we're seeing a ton of that right now in the somewhat different space of sucking CO2 and other greenhouse gases back out of the atmosphere, so negative emissions. That's also a technological intervention that has a ton of promise to, you know, help manage climate change, a ton of potential problems and limitations. And it's one where, you know, the amount of money available for subsidies right now and even in voluntary carbon markets, there's a lot of incentive for private firms to do it. The, I mean, the overriding thing about what these guys have done in Baja is that it's so tiny that if it didn't push the hot buttons of climate change and geoengineering, nobody would pay any attention. All right. We're talking with UCLA professor of environmental law, Edward Parson, Eric Nealer, science reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, professor Parson was just telling us about um, some of these different uh, plans for carbon capture. Uh, we, a few weeks ago on the program, we're talking about one program out of Caltech, and there have been a number of different ways of attempting to do that. But what are some of the other ideas in gen- uh, geoengineering, Eric Nealer, that are, that are out there? Um, that aren't just carbon capture kinds of things, but again, attempting to cool the earth. Yeah, I mean, there've been for for decades. People have come up with ideas. Um, uh, you know, there's a people can come up with all kinds of science fiction ideas, uh, putting uh, giant uh, reflective sunshades or, or umbrellas up in the earth, up in the earth's atmosphere. Uh, there's a company from Los, in Los Angeles, Ethospace. I've, I've noticed they've got something on their website about that. They've talked about it, but you know these are some folks, some former SpaceX uh, engineers, who were talking about different sorts of, of projects in space. That technology doesn't exist, of course. I've seen other reports of people trying to, you know, theorize uh, taking dust from the moon and putting it in a certain area to uh, to cool the planet. Um, on a more practical level, in the past, things that have actually have happened using the ocean to, as you say, suck uh, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There were uh, projects in the, uh, earlier in the 2000s and 1990s uh, fertilizing the oceans with iron, for example, to, um, to stir large plankton blooms that would then consume carbon dioxide and then sink to the bottom of the ocean taking with it that carbon and, and reducing the amount of carbon in the, in the atmosphere. So lots of projects, lots of ideas. Um, one of the things I think that really spurred this young man, I spoke to him a couple times, um, Luke Eisman, the man behind uh, Make Sunsets. All right. I want to thank... Academics. Yeah. Um, oh, just that, that he hasn't seen any, you know, he, he's a little bit frustrated and, 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 and does take the criticism about being a stunt. But, you know, there's a very well-known project uh, at Harvard University called Scopex just to do some research for 14 years. Hasn't been able to approve, hasn't been off the ground. Some very intelligent and, and, and thoughtful um, researchers, and they can't get approval. They tried it in New Mexico, didn't get off the ground. They took it to Sweden, 
there were some objections from local indigenous people in, in northern Sweden. So there's sort of the frustration that, that, that nothing's really happening and, and the climate's getting warmer and warmer and, and nobody's doing anything. And so this, this young man said, hey, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stir the pot a little bit. I want to thank you for being with us, Eric Nealer, science reporter for The Wall Street Journal, writing about this company, Make Sunsets, and Edward Parson, professor of environmental law at UCLA. Coming up, as we do every Thursday, it's our TV critics. They'll tell us about the best of television from The New Yorker. We'll be talking with Ingu Kang and from Latina Media. We'll talk with Christina Escobar. That's all coming up right here on Air Talk, it's our TV talk segment in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Join us tomorrow at 10 o'clock for Film Week. We'll hear from our critics Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, and Charles Solomon. Review of Knock at the Cabin, a horror film from M. Night Shyamalan. 80 for Brady, starring Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, Rita Moreno, and Sally Field. And Hugh Laurie and Amelia Clark star in The Amazing Maurice, uh, which is an animated film. We'll hear all about that, uh, a British animated movie. Coming up on Film Week tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Right now, it's television, though. That's our focus. Very pleased to be joined by Christina Escobar, TV critic and co-founder of Latina Media. Also with us is Ingu Kang of The New Yorker, where she's TV critic. Great to have you both with us. Let's begin with the Netflix series, Free Ridge. All of the episodes for the series being released today. Christina, please tell us about it. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, Free Ridge is out today. It is a spinoff of the On My Block show, which aired several seasons on Netflix and was really a favorite of, I would say, the Latino and Black community for featuring brown and Black high schoolers going on fun adventures, but also, um, you know, dealing with regular high school stuff like romances and grades and college admissions. Um, this show, Free Ridge, continues that with an all new cast. We've got four new friends. Um, and it's really a very similar vibe to the previous show. Um, it's set in the same place. They go to the same high school, but we've got a new cast. We've got some standout performances. Watching it, um, I was a little bit worried in the first couple episodes that they hadn't quite captured the magic, but I stuck with it and felt pleased with my watching experience by the end. That's great. Free Ridge uh, set in Free Ridge, California, by the way. Uh, the show stars uh, Kayla Monterosa Mejia and Brianna Salas. In uh, the film, um, the series, excuse me, is created by Laura Jungerich, uh, Eddie Gonzalez, and Jeremy Haft. All episodes, again, have released today, uh, Free Ridge. Also, Kunk on Earth is a Netflix series um, which uh, stars Diane Morgan, created by Charlie Brooker. Inku, tell us about, uh, about Kunk on Earth, please. Hey, Larry. So this is the type of show where it is either your type of humor or it is not. And they sort of give you a little bit of flavor of it. Um, 
Philomena Kunk, who was supposed to be, I don't know, maybe like the world's stupidest person who was giving you an overview of human history, says, religion was supposed to unite humankind in harmony and bland smiling. So either you are the type of person who thought at that or you were like, oh, boy. Yeah. Um, but if you are in the former category, then you are in for a treat. This is some extremely like Sahara dry humor. Um, and it is sort of like nonstop jokes. And then there are little insights within the jokes of this very stupid person. And so, yeah, maybe a bit of an acquired taste. But if this is for you, it is for you. And uh, came out the start of this year, all five episodes available on Netflix, Kunk on Earth. It's rated TVMA. Also on Netflix, Against the Ropes, um, which is a Mexican series created by Carolina Rivera. Uh, and it tells the story of Angela uh, after her release from prison. Christina, what do you think of Against the Ropes? I liked Against the Rope. So it's a Spanish language show. I would encourage viewers who are maybe not used to watching things with subtitles and who don't speak Spanish to still give it a try. There's a whole world out there. We gotta, we gotta watch stuff with subtitles now. And it's a luchadora, a lucha libre show. So there's a lot wrestling in it. Um, and I would say it can be hard to match serious emotional moments with over-the-top silly Lucha Libre with um, a prison drug plotline and a bridal shop gang of workers together. Um, if that sounds like a lot of uh, desperate elements, it is. But the show Against the Rope somehow makes it all work, especially as you get past the pilot. Um into this really sort of warm show with beautiful different notes, um, certainly plenty of uh, laughs and action, but also uh, real characters with real motivations that, you know, you root for and that tie the whole thing together. My wife's working very hard on her Spanish. So we have a lot of Spanish language TV on in our in our <laughs> house lately. So I, I we have to have against the ropes on. So yeah, uh, it helps. It definitely helps. <laughs> All right. Uh, the series is unrated again. It's from Mexico. It's in Spanish. All of the episodes premiered uh, just days ago. Against the Ropes is on Netflix. Pamela, A Love Story is a documentary film that's on Netflix. This is not a series, but we want to talk about it because, in a sense, it's a response to the Hulu dramatic miniseries, Pam and Tommy, that came out about a year ago. That starred Lily James and Sebastian Stan. And um, in Pamela, A Love Story, Ingu, this is really a chance for, for her to tell her own story, uh, largely in her words, right? Yeah, um, I think Pamela Anderson was quite vocal when that show came out that she considered it a violation and she was not at all approving or participatory in that, uh, in the making of that TV show. I think Tommy Lee had like a, a more sort of like conciliatory, conciliatory attitude toward it, but Anderson was very much, um, against it, uh, which, you know, sort of makes show makes sense for a show that's sort of about to be like sort of supposed to be about consent and um, bodily autonomy. I think that Pamela Love Story, you know, it shows Anderson, I think like maybe without makeup for most of the documentary, it feels very 
varnish that feels very human. You see her as a mother who is now like the son of like two grown sons who also know about this tape. Um, the tape that sort of like, I think in her telling of it, there was her life before the tape and then the life after, and then her life after the tape. And it sort of feels like professionally and personally that tape just did so much to uh, derail everything she had going on with her. And I think this is also a story about a woman who has this extremely mixed relationship with her body. You know, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says something along the lines of her time in the spotlight in the 90s that she was this like really idealized body that sort of got to go everywhere. And she was just sort of along for the ride. And I think that there are times when she feels like she actually has ownership of her body. And of course, with the tape, um, she really relates it to experiences of childhood sexual assault. And so it is just a really like non-ideological human portrait of someone who had something really crazy happen to her. And I think it's still really dealing with the ramifications of that and trying to figure out what the ramifications of that should be uh, for her children. And I think sort of as a final note, she's a little more honest about money um, than we would expect her, someone in her position to be. And I think um, the conversations about sort of bodily commoditization and what that was like for her I think there's just so many really good nuggets in here, even if you watched Pam and Tommy, because I think Pam and Tommy sort of where it sort of fell flat was in sort of getting in her mind, like feeling out her interiority as a character. And I think that's pretty much what Pamela Love Story gives you. So it's a really nice Mm. change of pace. Pamela Love Story documentary film on Netflix. Ryan White, uh, who's done a number of uh, highly regarded documentaries, directed. It's rated TVMA, and it just premiered on Tuesday. Coming up, we'll hear our television critics tell us about Not Dead Yet, an ABC series that also is on Hulu. Poker Face on Peacock. I've had a chance to catch a couple episodes of that series starring Natasha Leone from uh, Ryan Johnson of Knives Out and Will Trent, another ABC series also on Hulu. We'll come back with our critics in just one minute on Air Talk. Air Talk, our weekly look at the best of television, joined this week by critics Ingu Kang of The New Yorker and Christina Escobar, who is co-founder of latinamedia.co. And uh, we're going to move on to talk about Not Dead Yet, which stars Gina Rodriguez, Casey Johnson and David Windsor are the creators of the ABC and Hulu series. Christina, please tell us about it. Yes, so it is premiering in, in just a few days, and it stars Dina Rodriguez. As you mentioned, she's traded up from the last time she was on network television and CW to all the way up to ABC. And in some ways, you know, she plays a similar character to Jane the Virgin in that they're both writers sort of at a crossroads dealing with romantic issues but the tone of this show is pretty different and her character Nell is very different from Jane and that Nell is a mess and Jane was hyper organized um 
but it has a nice mix of tones in in terms of how it works. And the basic premise is that after a failed engagement and having left Los Angeles for London for several years, she moves back to her old job at a newspaper where she gets assigned the obituary column. And every episode, she is haunted by the person she is writing about, which sets up (laughs) fun stuff, fun guest stars, fun life lessons, um, and just um, a real showcase, I would say, of Gina Rodriguez's comedy skills you know she does great physical comedy and she gets to do that by being the only person who sees the ghosts (laughs) um and interacting with them and it you know it's a very nice show and nice to see her exhibiting her full set of charms on television well cbs paramount plus has its series ghosts which is very popular so (laughs) now abc has a comedy series with with ghosts at the center of it So uh, Not Dead Yet, again, it'll premiere with the first two episodes Wednesday of next week, 8.30 on ABC, and then episodes will debut on Hulu the following day. Uh, It's uh, based on Alexandra Potter's novel Confessions of a 40-something blank-up. Not Dead Yet is the the series. Poker Face on Peacock stars Natasha Leone, Benjamin Bratt, Scott Vogel, Ryan Johnson of Knives Out as the creator. Um, the first four episodes are out. Uh, the fifth episode comes out today. Ingu, uh, what do you think of Poker Face? I've seen the first two episodes, and I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's a little weird because it is definitely a sort of network-type show on a streaming site. Um, I think in my review, I called it a hangout procedural. <laughs> uh, it is definitely a sort of case of the week or a case per episode type of show. And yet at the same time, um, I think like a re- the main attraction for the show is wanting to sort of be around Leon's character, who is like extremely salt of the earth, a sardonic, sarcastic, anti-authority figure, but she sort of has enough of like of a sense of righteousness to want to right all of these wrongs that she sees. Um, the, the main sort of like hook of the show is maybe a little bit hokey. Natasha Leone's character is someone who can always detect when someone is lying, which I think sort of has like a nice little echo with Knives Out, uh, with Anna de Armas' character who couldn't uh, tell a lie. But in any case, um, I think it's just like this really great character actor showcase. Um, you mentioned some of the actors. I'm going to add to this. Chloe Sevigny, Hong Chow, Adrian Brody, Ellen Barkin, Lil Ray Howery, Judith Light. And for me, I think the main pleasure of the show is that it's such a great character actor showcase. It almost feels like Natasha Leone letting her fellow character actors be the Natasha Leone of their episodes. Um, they just get to bite into these really meaty characters. And, you know, for someone who doesn't always like love the procedural format, for me, it's a little repetitive. I really just had like a really great time hanging out with these actors and these characters. Yeah, it's really not about the plot. I'm with you. Um, and, and to me, it's a real throwback, very similar to Columbo, right. even, even, um, formatically. And, um, I think one of the critics that I, I heard on this, 
this said, it's Columbo meets the fugitive. And I thought that was a good explanation of it because, of course, she's in a different location every week. And that's where the story unfolds as she's on the run. We're talking about the Peacock streaming series Poker Face. Uh, again, the fifth episode releasing today uh, on ABC and Hulu the following day, Will Trent, starring Ramon Rodriguez and Erica Christensen. The uh, series is created by Liz Heldens and Daniel T. Thompson. Christina, please tell us about Will Trent. Yes, so Will Trent is another procedural show, um, and it is, you know, in some ways kind of similar, I would say, to Poker Face, and that it is one of those, like, episodes of the week where you, you know, there's a new mystery, and it's solved by the end of the hour, which is nice um, in many ways. You know, you don't need to have, um, you can tune into any episode at any time. You don't need to have watched all of the back ones for it to make sense. For and those of us say- that like closure, it's kind of nice. <laughs> yes, yes, things wrap up. Um, and I would say in the same way that Natasha Leon's performance carries Poker Face in many ways or that, you know, you want to watch it because of her, um, Ramon Rodriguez delivers an amazing performance here as special agent Will Trent. He's a very different character than Natasha Leon's, um, but he has this sort of great mix of warmth, but also standoffishness, uh, keen, keen intellect, but also great vulnerability. He's able to be just enough of a mystery while also inviting you in. He's this really strong, interesting character where in the same way, maybe some of the mysteries are kind of easy to figure out, but you want to watch him because you're rooting for him and his relationships and his growth, uh, which makes it a pretty fun show to tune into every week um, and get that nice little dose of that Georgia drawl. Christina, you know, this is another ABC series. We've talked about uh, a couple that are ABC. Others are streaming only. Is the division between streaming series and and network uh, series starting to um, come down a little bit, that barrier, or, or still very distinct difference? I think that they play differently or they play to different audiences. So what works about Will Trent on the network show is that, you know, you can just, if you happen upon it, you can just watch it and you will understand it. I also think procedurals in that sort of one of a week maybe speak to a slightly older audience or a more law and order type audience that maybe isn't as much on streaming. However, um, there's going to be plenty for folks to catch on Hulu as well um, in that sort of second run. So it's interesting to see how the numbers divide and what the difference is. Yeah, and how they determine which, you know, for like NBC Peacock, which is going to be on the network and and stream later on Peacock and which, um, you know, uh, like Poker Face are going to go only on to Peacock. My thanks to Christina Escobar of latinamedia.co and Ingu Kang of the New Yorker TV critics joining us, sharing their expertise tomorrow at 10 o'clock. It's our film critics with their expertise on Film Week. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now comes up next. And uh, uh, actually, it'll be Austin Cross with you tomorrow at 9. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.